Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. Through my work with Autism Personal Coach, many of the people that we coach, in addition to using our services, also have therapists. Sometimes they have excellent therapists, but in many cases they don't have good experiences with their therapist because these therapists many times don't understand their needs in relation to their autistic identities. That's why I'm pleased to have Vanessa Quinn to join me today to discuss what neurodiversity affirming therapy looks like and what an inclusive waiting room looks like as well. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Vanessa, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, I'm excited to talk to you. Well, and I'm excited to talk to you as well. And just maybe starting out, where does your story in the autistic community begin? Yeah, so I was actually diagnosed autistic and ADHD last fall at 36 years old, but it was really launching my private practice last summer that kind of clued me in. I was fortunate enough to meet an autistic psychologist in the private practice launch course that I was taking. And she recommended that I read Women and Girls on the Autism Spectrum. And that's when it hit me. <laughs> <laughs> and you just kind of, from reading that book, you just knew that's me. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been in therapy off and on for a really long time and just trying to figure out why I feel so different and why no other diagnoses really fit or why the anxiety never really seemed to get better. So, yes, reading that book a few chapters in, and it just kind of clicked. Now, you mentioned owning uh, your own therapeutic practice called Bloom Therapy, located in a city that I've spent many years in, um, in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. So when patients or clients walk into your office, I think they may realize that your therapeutic space may be different than other um, therapist offices, as, as I think, you know, from seeing pictures of it, it's a unique waiting Can you uh, talk about the space and how it might be supportive of autistic and neurodivergent people? Sure. Yeah, I have a private suite in a large office space, and I use the waiting area as a sensory area. So it has a swing and a tent and a lava lamp and fidgets. I basically just try to imagine what would make me feel comfortable going to a therapy office. And I, you know, take a lot of time asking clients about the lighting and the sounds and if they'd like a different kind of seating. So I offer like beanbag chairs, some clients just sit on the floor. So it's very versatile and can be changed given my clients' needs. I'm curious how, what kind of feedback your clients have given to you regarding the waiting, that waiting area and how, it, you know, walking into the, the office, that's the first thing you see. So how does that be, be a, a starting point for them in terms of their experience with you? Yeah, I think that they know 
obviously they're in a neurodivergent affirming office with a neurodivergent therapist, right? Because a lot of the things that are there are also for me. So I have my own fidgets and, you know, I have my own preferences for lighting. So many of them just say, you know, it's just comfortable. I just feel safe here. So it really does make a big difference. So whenever I meet therapists, I wonder how the uh, therapy they provide is neurodiversity affirming. So I'm wondering for your therapy, in what ways do you see it as neurodiversity affirming for your clients? Yes, the sensory friendly space is definitely one of those ways. I also use self-disclosure as a therapist, so I am very open about being neurodivergent, struggling with that myself, which I think makes a big difference because I've learned that neurodivergent people tend to build relationships and share information through storytelling as you have probably already figured out yourself. So I just tell my stories, they tell their stories. And, you know, we, we share special interests to build rapport. So it's just very non-traditional is what I typically explain to my clients. So yeah, I mean, I, I just, everything is custom to the neurodivergent client's experience. So I obviously believe in storytelling. I have a podcast where people share their stories. I think that's so helpful. How do you see storytelling in relation to the therapeutic experience? I think it's really important that clients know when they're telling me how they feel in a certain situation in life that I know exactly how they feel. Because the biggest thing I hear from my clients is that when they have seen therapists in the past who are probably neurotypical, they are guessing that they're feeling anxious in certain situations for completely the wrong reasons. Whereas as soon as they bring a situation up to me, I typically know what it was that was triggering that anxiety in that setting because I've experienced it. So, so many autistic and neurodivergent folks also have the identity of being part of the LGBTQIA plus community. How do you see supporting the folks with both of these identities as part of the overall process of being neurodiversity affirming? Well, I'm also queer and I've known that much longer than I've known that I'm autistic. Um, so, but I think like the, you know, learning about terms like neuroqueer, thanks to Dr. Walker, it just really clicks how those two identities intersect because I think that, you know, being queer, being neurodivergent are both identities, but also it helps to understand that a lot of neurodivergent people think of gender as a social construct, which means that there's a lot of blending as far as sexual identity and uh, sexual orientation. And uh, thanks for bringing up Dr. Nick Walker's wonderful book, uh, Neuroqueer. And sure. people should definitely purchase that. Yes. And also Dr. Walker's uh, web webcomic, Weird Luck. So I'll give a shout out to that as well. So definitely okay. check both of those out. <laughs> so, you know, as a therapist, you know, one of the things that a lot of therapists have to deal with is with insurance. And that's got to be a gigantic pain. And I'm sure many therapists would ag- agree with that probably sense of it. You know, I know you don't accept insurance, and I read that one of the reasons that you don't accept insurance is something I haven't 
heard too many therapists talk about, and I wanted to discuss this with you, is not wanting their clients to be forced to set goals as a result of going through insurance. How does setting goals or not setting goals fit into how you support your clients? Yeah, I think a lot of neurodivergent folks, especially if I'm their first therapist, they really don't know what goals they want to work towards, right? They just want to feel better. And more importantly, I would say probably their first goal is just to be understood by their therapist. So when you have these therapists who not only want to diagnose and create a treatment plan in the very first session, that's just not as flexible as therapy needs to be to be neurodivergent affirming, in my opinion. So it's sort of like, you know, you start coming up with a lot of the goals that are in the medical pathology as well. And then they start to become very behavioral oriented, right? Measurable, objective goals. And again, those aren't things that neurodivergent people are very good at tracking or meeting criteria for. So I just really try to help clients focus on what does progress look and feel like, making sure we're on the right track. I really, really strongly encourage clients to give me feedback as well to make sure that we're focusing on the right things. And I just try to empower them that the therapeutic experience is their own. I have no personal goals for my clients. Anytime I I feel frustrated that, oh, they need to get here faster, I check myself because you know, that progress at their own rate is the most important part. To me, understanding and validation is the most important thing. How can you make progress and feel safe with someone if you do not get those things? Exactly. Now, a lot of times, you know, like people will talk about goals and to-do lists can often be linked to goals and, you know, things like that. I read where you wrote about to-do lists and how they cause anxiety for you. So if to-do lists didn't work for you, then what were some other ways or what might be some ways for other people to get things done in their life that it is meaningful for them, not meaningful for others, but particularly meaningful for each person and what they want in their life? Yeah, I think finding a replacement depends on the person. I think it depends on why lists don't work, right? So some ADHD clients may say, well, I lose the list. In my case, it was more that I felt like I was literally telling myself what to do. I have pathological demand avoidance pretty badly. So I started trying to think of different ways just to manage keeping track of thoughts and ideas, but not feeling like I'm burdening myself with more things to do in the day. So I started just putting things on my calendar and it could be any and everything. Let's say I intend to go to the store today. So I'm putting that on the list, but I'm reminding myself it's optional or sorry, calendar, not list. Telling myself it's optional, keeping track of the, the spoons that I have. So if I get to that point in the day and I have no spoons left, I'm not going to the store and that's okay. Giving myself that grace that just because I have a lot of things that I would like to get done, it doesn't mean that I have to do them. How did that, like, what what kind of change did that bring to your life? Like, Yeah, I mean, I, I read, you know, the, the book Laziness Does Not Exist by Devin Price. And so I took the word lazy out of my vocabulary around COVID, start 
so a couple years ago. And what's most surprising about it is that I'm probably more productive because I'm making it an option and I'm valuing my time and energy and, you know, not beating myself up when things don't happen and certainly not calling myself lazy for not doing things. And very rarely would someone like put things like rest on their to-do list as well. Exactly. Yes. And so I do sometimes put things that are special interest activities or just for leisure, for sure. And how can people learn more about you and the services you provide? Yes, so my website is bloomtherapycincinnati.com, but I'm also on Instagram, bloomtherapycincy. So those are probably the two best pieces. Now, you were just talking about your special interests, and I love talking about that because it elicits joy with so many people, and I think that's so important. So I heard one of your special or focus interests is similar to mine, and that's TV shows. So anytime I get a chance to talk to people about TV shows, I'm going to take the opportunity. So (laughs) I'm curious, what are some of the TV shows that you're currently watching? So I have my favorites, you know, of course, that are like the comfort show. Bob's Burgers is a big one with my partner and I. (laughs) All four of our cats are named after characters from the show. And then The Office is a good comfort watch, but we're currently checking out House of Dragon and enjoying that. You know, it's kind of like the time of year right before everything starts coming back. So I'm only really thinking of things like Handmaid's Tale we're certainly waiting on, and I'm sure there's something else I'm forgetting, but, you know, fall is a great time for TV. But I don't watch as much as I used to, but it's definitely still a very big comfort to me. Did you watch Game of Thrones? Yes, definitely. What do you, I loved it. Yeah, I, I loved it as well. I'm watching a House of Dragon as well. What do, what do you think about it so far? I think it's great. I mean, it's got all the things that I loved about Game of Thrones in it, so that's wonderful. It feels just like a continuation of Game of Thrones. Yes, in a lot of ways it does. <laughs> well, I could talk to you about uh, House of Dragon and Game of Thrones all day, but... Um, <laughs> For those, some people may not be as interested in that, but um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I do I do enjoy um, the aspect of it, the female character, the the queen, and the progression of. We've had enough male leaders. I think we need more female leaders. Absolutely, yes, it's time. <laughs> yeah, well, Vanessa, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Vanessa for the conversation. To learn more about Vanessa, please check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides extraordinary support for those to live self-sufficient and purpose-driven lives through our customized coaching? If this is something that you're interested in learning more about, please visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.